Well, good morning, Trinity. We are teaching through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And despite being thousands of years old and written in a foreign language, it's still an absolute page turner. So this series is called Return to God because we drift and God's people need to be called back to God and back to his ways. So let me quickly recap like I do each week. Even though ancient Israel had been saved from Egyptian slavery and given their own land and shown the way of God, uh, they were called to build a righteous and just kingdom on earth, but ultimately they failed. And they turned away from God and they perpetuated injustice. And God intervened to stop their evil ways by sending the Babylonians and the Assyrians to conquer them and to bring them into exile. It was like a biblical justice league, uh, the Snyder version, of course. Now, after 70 years, Nehemiah is one of the people who returns, and he is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, who is the ruler of the Persian Empire at the time. And not only was Jerusalem still in disrepair from being conquered, but it seems that recent attacks had left them even more vulnerable, and the city gates and parts of the wall had been destroyed, and Nehemiah secures resources and permission from Artaxerxes to fortify Jerusalem. The fate of God's people mattered at this time because God had promised to bring about a Messiah through the descendants of Abraham. Not through Bob or Brad or Brian, although all strong contestants, through Abraham. Nehemiah is part of the story of the coming of Jesus. And today we're looking at chapter 11, which has nothing to do with bankruptcy, uh, but also the first part of chapter 12. So last time, uh, last week, we saw how all the people together made a fresh covenant to, to God and the kind of promises that we need to make in light of that. But now our passage today is revisiting some of the practical matters of repopulating the city and the pragmatic steps that they have to take to achieve that vision. So let's pray and then uh, let's read. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're with us. Bless your word to us and help us to trust you and follow you. Speak to us, call us, and help us to live for a vision bigger than ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we uh, have some more lists of names that we're actually just going to skip over and just read parts of today. So starting in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, Everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Let's pause there. Uh, it then lists out people from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Benjamin. And then it goes into various lists, people of all kinds of work. A diplomat is mentioned, singers, craftsmen, and then also uh, priests and Levites in verse 18. So let's read verse 18. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, 
were 172. And the rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, every one in his inheritance. Let's pause again there, and uh, it continues in that same vein, and then let's jump to verse 25. And as for the villages, with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and Dibon and its villages, and in Jechabzeel and its villages. Let's pause again. Then it goes on to list out the people in the villages. So we are going to jump to the next chapter and verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sierraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra. Again, let's pause, and it goes on to list out the rest of the priests and the Levites, and ends like this in uh, verse 26. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. This is God's word. So let's unpack all this and discover why these ancient words have a hidden message for us today. A big part of the events of Nehemiah have been about the physical fortification of Jerusalem. And one purpose is safety from enemies who want to destroy them. But the bigger purpose is to restore Jerusalem as a vibrant city where people can live and work and where the ministry of the temple could thrive again. And if God's people didn't value the city, then temple worship would have declined. And their enthusiasm for walking in the ways of God and making God the center of their culture would have suffered. Their lives were designed to revolve around the worship of God. And by devaluing the city, they would have devalued worship. Fast forward then to the time of Jesus we learn from Jesus that the temple would be destroyed and that Jesus himself is actually the temple. And then we learn in a slightly different way that also we learn that our bodies are considered to be temples of the Holy Spirit and that God's people, the church of Jesus, are now God's house. So for us today, we still see the sacred idea of the temple, but we understand that it's expressed differently. So our concept of temple worship is very different to their concept of temple worship. Even though that's true, the underlying reason we should value the city is still the same reason that they had. Let me explain. We don't value the city because there is a physical temple here. We value the city because cities are still and always will be centers of culture, which makes them central for God's redemptive purposes. Cities are magnets for people. People are enchanted by cities. They flock to the city for school, for work, for romance, for experiences, for opportunities, and for a particular kind of community. People love coming to Chicago, especially to see the Cubs lose all the time, unfortunately. But we love it, though. Trends start in the cities. What gets popularized in cities spreads to the regions and then to the world. Cities have always been popular and full of charm and culture. That's why my soul doesn't feel right about the concept of country 
music. And if they'd wanted me to like it, I feel like they could have branded it differently. It's kind of a branding failure. If you think about it historically, uh, when Rome finally fell, when it was defeated, the surrounding regions were absolutely decimated. Cities are supporting hubs for entire regions. So when cities flourish, the world flourishes. If we want world peace, actually, then we must seek the blessing of the city. If we want God to get the greatest glory and the highest praise, if we want to populate heaven with eternal worship, then our greatest opportunity and greatest calling is to reach the most people. And that happens by affecting the places of most significance and most influence. One way God calls people today for that is by living in the city and by seeking the prosperity of the city. To glorify God, we must get on God's mission. As pastor and author John Piper has said, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. The more a person wants to worship and honor God, the more serious that person will become about God's mission. Just as Nehemiah's generation needed to revitalize their city in order to prioritize the worship of God, we too have a calling to revive Chicago for the purpose of increasing the worship of God. I really hope that we can all see how those two things are directly connected. Mission in the most important places results in the greatest glorification of God. In the words of the Blues Brothers, Chicago's most famous siblings, we're on a mission from God. Now, in light of all this, Nehemiah makes a bold move. And you've, I'm sure you've heard of a tithe when it comes to giving money, right? When we give a tenth of our income to God. Well, Nehemiah gives a tenth of the people in order to start the repopulation efforts of the city. He tithes from the whole population. It says that they cast lots to do this tithe, which essentially is a lottery system. People are picking numbers out of a hat, and it, it's something like that. And it also appears that some people, in addition to this lottery system, also volunteer to relocate into the city. Either way, a significant amount of people are going to move into the city because they were seemingly chosen by random. Of course, it was God's will, but it would have seemed a bit, you know, the casting lots would have seemed kind of random. In our day, imagine what would happen if 10% of Christians in the Chicago suburbs moved into the city. Imagine the impact on the city itself. Imagine the influence it would have. But also imagine the impact on the region and the impact globally. Just by reorganizing a certain percentage of people, the very fabric of culture itself could change. Are you and I willing to be selected for this mission? Called upon to commit to the city for the sake of the redemptive purposes of God. In this passage, there's no disagreement over this. There's no arguing or rejecting of this. Every single person of the population tithe, they all accept the hand of God upon them to direct their lives. I'm sure many would have preferred to stay in their homes 
close to their families and their friends, close to their favorite chain restaurants and subdivisions without sidewalks in their dream community. And it wouldn't have just been a sacrifice for those who were moving in and prioritizing the city. It would have also been a sacrifice for those who lost friends and neighbors for moving away and family from the surrounding towns. It's important that as Christians from both directions, understanding the significance of urban mission, are willing to make that sacrifice, willing to be released from both directions. The Nehemiah call to the city meant that they were all willing to be led by the need of the moment, not by what was convenient or financially optimal or what others were doing or what aligned with their five-year plan or anything like that. They gave themselves to a much higher purpose. They truly had faith and truly had obedience. Are we willing to do the same? Are, are you? Am I? Are we all willing to say that having a Christian presence in Chicago is more important than our plans and our dreams than staying close to friends and close to family and the ease or expectation of a certain way of life? As Americans, we tend to have a very individualistic way of thinking. We think of our own financial success, of our own legacy, of our own comfort, of our own goals and of our own plans and of our own families. And in contrast, a calling from God is not about what we want, but what God wants. Like Jesus saying in the Gospels, not my will, but yours be done. For example, if you receive jury duty, like a jury duty summons through the mail, are you excited to do it? If, you've, if, that, if that's ever happened to you or just imagine it happening, probably not. It's inconvenient. It seems like it would be undesirable, but it's actually a very helpful image of what it looks like to be called by God. In my experience, the more that Christians desire something, the more suspicious we need to be that our desire would also be, just happen to be, God's will. If we desire ice cream for dessert every night, I don't think that's actually God's will. I'm just going to go out on a limb on that one. If we desire revenge, certainly not God's will. If we have important responsibilities to do, but we keep scrolling through social media, again, not God's will. If we smell fresh cookies or bacon, actually, that's different. That, that is always God's will for us to consume those things, so that's okay. It's, the point is, it's really important that we are suspicious when we feel that God's will perfectly aligns with our desires. Look at Nehemiah's generation. They truly saw themselves as belonging to something bigger. So much so that when Nehemiah said, 10% of you have to move in, you have to do it. There's no choice. He didn't offer a blue pill. He, he only had the red pill. That was the only pill. The incredible thing is, the mind-blowing thing is, it appears that they all were willing to accept the call. Being willing doesn't mean each of them would get the call. But if someone wasn't willing then it would show something in their heart wasn't quite right. We need to be truly open-minded. We need to Google our own hearts. 
This passage today is a list of those who are willing to respond. Their names, their legacy, that they are eternally recorded to honor their willingness to follow God's call. Did you notice that before they even started with this lottery and before they encouraged, you know, volunteers, it starts off by saying that the leaders already lived in Jerusalem. The leaders already lived there. Leaders set the tone. Leaders set the example. Leaders pioneer the vision in order for others to follow suit. If these leaders had set the wrong example and had themselves not valued the city, then the people would not have responded to the call. People do what they see their leaders doing. Our example has a big impact. For us at Trinity, I see us as pioneers. We are trailblazers. We're here so that others can join our ranks. Our example serves a key purpose. It facilitates the process for all those who win the lottery. Pray that you would win the lottery. That's probably the first time you've ever heard a pastor say that, but you understand my point. Pray for more and more people to also win the city repopulation lottery, to receive the calling. This moment in Nehemiah, getting to live in the city, it's like winning the golden ticket. You know, uh, I've got a golden ticket, you know, that thing. Honestly, sometimes I honestly feel like I'm Willy Wonka. So welcome to my chocolate factory. Make sure you're careful or you might turn into a giant blueberry. But in, in the city, there were already civil leaders like Nehemiah and religious leaders like Ezra and some other leaders that were mentioned as well in the passage. But the city in general was still very sparse at this point. We've looked at this before in previous weeks, but it's still sparse at this point. Even though they've had these big gatherings and these big cultural events and all these things happening, the actual population living in the city, very sparse. There's no Starbucks to lure people in. Macy's had moved out, but hopefully they'll move back in when it's safe again. So Nehemiah has to take very direct steps to root people into the city. And when they start the lottery system, it includes everyone. So yes, they need more priests and Levites for city temple, but they also need gatekeepers, chief officers, law enforcement, temple servants. They need engineers. They need builders, civil servants, diplomats and musicians and community leaders and teachers and merchants and deep dish restaurant owners, all the essential things. Cities are places for people of every background and every type of skill. This section, in fact, doesn't even mention the spiritual leaders until later on. It starts with everyone else, all those who actually make up the economy. It starts with those who have regular jobs. All of you is what it takes to build a city. But there are some differences for those who commit to the city itself. The verses here make a contrast between those who stay in the towns and those who win the golden ticket. Verse 3 begins to list out names. It says uh, these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. And then in verse 25, it also says, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in 
uh, Kiriath Arba and its villages. Two things come to mind when I read this. Firstly, the surrounding regions are typically agricultural farming lands. And it specifically mentions their fields, and it's specifically here talking about the regions of Judah. The labor and economic structure of the region of Judah revolves around farming the fields. What this means is that for those who commit to the city, their work will need to focus on different industries, on non-agricultural industries, or perhaps industries that are extensions of agriculture. This is one of the selling points of cities. One of the advantages. If you are not into farming or generally connected to agriculture, the city is for you. Anyone in the financial sector, city. Those in the hospitality sector, city. Those in education, especially higher education, city. Those in the legal industry, city. Those in the marketing, city. Those in communications, City, those in technology, city. Think about it. Think about healthcare, logistics, entertainment, acting, performing, art, comedy, city, city, city. It's all of them, city. Those things are not going to happen in Judah. They're going to happen in Jerusalem. And Chicago is our Jerusalem. It's not just that there are more opportunities in the city. It's that many of those opportunities are hard to find elsewhere. Those industries tend to be centered in cities. Cities are often tied to greater career success. Secondly, it says those who stay in the towns, they stay on their properties. Specifically said there. That means those who commit to the city must now acquire new property within the city limits. And based on this, I want to cast a vision for those who don't yet own property in the city. I want to call you into home ownership. And because you are all in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory today, that means you've all won a golden ticket. And that means as a community, I want us to make home ownership part of our mission, to think about it like that. Of course, it won't be possible for everyone. And it may take a while for some to get there. But please... Be open-minded about this. Nehemiah's generation had to be. We want to be a generation that's open to it as well. Let me give three reasons for Christians to buy property in Chicago. Number one, skin in the game. Skin in the game. When you own Chicago dirt, you really feel like you belong. And that was my experience. It's sort of like the difference between dating and being married. So don't be the lame dude who won't propose, all right? Think about it this way. If someone borrows your car, you hope they treat it well. And if they're a good friend, they'll treat it well. But if you rent a car, what do people do? People tend to drive it into the ground. They, try, they tend to drive a little faster and maybe drive it a little more rough than they would if it was their own or a friend's. Property ownership inc actually increases spiritual ownership. Point number two, city improvement. City improvement. If neighborhoods and properties look unkept and are not updated, it sends the wrong message. The message is people here don't care. They've given up. This place is not safe, not prosperous. It feels depressing. And the more we can improve the beautification of the city, 
and it starts with our own little patch of the city, the more we can help Chicago thrive. And then number three, wealth creation. Wealth creation. There are no guarantees in life, but typically property values increase over time, especially if you make improvements. And especially owning property in Chicago, the value goes up a lot. Lots of people value living here, and that's one of the reasons that the prices are high. But also owning property here means you can generate higher income by renting it out or maybe using it as an Airbnb or getting a two flat and you know something like that. Or even if, even if you move away, it's a huge source of income. Personally, our own house value has almost doubled from when we brought it originally. Buying in the city might be a steeper hill to begin with, but you can actually go way higher in the long run. And more wealth means more generosity. Now let's talk about how to own property. I have three things on this as well. So number one on this, how to own property. First of all, you've got to gain clarity. Gain clarity. Find out what's involved. Don't automatically think you can't. Calculate the cost. Talk to people who have done it. Don't discount yourself. Become a student of this subject matter. Lots of people do this all the time. Number two, be resourceful. Be resourceful. Look at increasing your income. Seek more qualifications or training if you need to. Perhaps family can help you out with this or you can join forces with others and pool resources together. Applying for grants or government programs or getting a fixer-upper or, you know, can you get a two flat and rent one unit out? That kind of thing. You know, how much help can you get if you're a first-time buyer? Those kind of questions. And then point number three is to get focused. Get focused. Get on a budget. Get on top of your debt. Develop a plan. If you start now, it could take you a few years, but you might find yourself owning a home here in Chicago sooner than you may have imagined. If you already own property, then consider how can you improve it in a way that serves the city. Ask, what message does my property send? Please allow room in your heart for the Holy Spirit to grow the vision of property ownership and property improvement as part of the mission of God that we have. It may not be as much of a barrier as you think. Now let me land the plane today uh, with this. One more reason to consider city dwelling as well as also potentially, hopefully, home ownership in the city. The legacy it leaves. The legacy. This passage ended by tracing the purity of the line of the priests. Even though they had been exiled in Babylon, they had still preserved their heritage and they could therefore continue to trace the work of God into the future, into future generations. Think about this for us. We can actually trace our inheritance. We have received the gospel message from Jesus through his disciples, through all those in history who have taken up the name of Jesus. There is continuity of this responsibility leading all the way to us. We now have the responsibility to continue the lineage. The city, in particular, needs longevity. It needs those with a generational mindset. 
those who can trace the work from family line to family line to make an inheritance here for the future. What is this gospel that we have received? It's about a God who left heaven and relocated his home in order to reach us at great cost to himself. He made his home on earth. He came to our neighborhood. He found our house and he knocked on our door and he ate at our table. And perhaps even we enjoyed cookies and bacon together. Let's respond. Let's have the band uh, come up. Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. He saved us so that we would uh, be his tithe and his gift to the world. To show the world that faith and redemption in Jesus makes sense and is worth it. Jesus died on the cross to purchase our freedom. He broke the power of sin, the power of evil. Let's follow him. Let's respond today. Please go ahead and turn in that Connect card and the offering envelope when the baskets come around. Consider what next step you need to take on the back or write one in in the comments section. Really, truly, honestly consider owning and improving property in Chicago. And if that's a long-term dream for some, then be content with your circumstances. But allow that seed to grow in your heart. Allow God to help you love the city like He does. God always does more than we can imagine. Let's go ahead and stand and let's continue in worship.